You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I talk with Orvis-endorsed fly fishing guide, Lucas Bissett. We talk about everything from his work planting black mangroves in the Louisiana marsh, climate change, the Magnuson-Stevens Act, and even some of Lucas's favorite flies, uh, the Bissett crustacean and Bissett's mud bug uh, for redfish in Louisiana. Hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy that improves the social, environmental, and economic bottom lines of your business. Profit sustainably. All right, uh, Lucas Bissett, how's it going, man? Good, how are you, Rick? I, I can't complain. It's a uh, beautiful day here in here in Charleston, South Carolina. How uh, how are things out in uh, Louisiana? Yeah, it's uh, I think it's eighty degrees right now. <laughs> you know, real real Thanksgiving like weather. Uh, <laughs> kind of windy, a little cloudy. You know, typical Louisiana sort of fall winter weather. Minus the eighty degrees, it's probably a little warm, but. I think we're on the front of a uh, cold front coming down or something along those lines. So it'll typically get a little warmer the day before. Nice. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're, I think we skipped fall in Charleston. We'll probably just head straight into winter. Um, that's what we did last year too. So I can, I I can relate. Um, (laughs) but, um, Lucas, I wanted to sort of get things started here. Um, for those who, who don't know you, um, if you just wanted to give us a little bit of background on 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 who you are and and what you do and and uh, what you're working on, yeah, no problem. Yeah, so I was uh, was born and raised in the state of Louisiana. Uh, despite the lack of accent, I am Cajun by birth. <laughs> so uh, have have lived in Louisiana most of my life. Spent a little time in Florida, a little time in Missouri, but uh, born and raised here and back here since '04. I am currently an Orvis-endorsed fly fishing guide here in the state of Louisiana. We focus on redfish and black drum and sheepshead and other inshore species. So that's always been a really cool kind of opportunity because Louisiana is not a fly fishing state, but it is a fly fishing destination. So I enjoy getting all those funny looks from people whenever I tell them that not only do I not use regular tackle, but that I then let all my fish go. So... I get to uh, I get to be a bit of an alien in my own home, but I enjoy it. It's fun. I've been uh, been doing it now since 2011, so uh, have a few years under my belt now as a guide. Really enjoy the opportunity to get people out there and show them the states that I grew up in and the marshes that I hold dear to myself. And you know, one of those things that you can't truly appreciate it until you come out here and see it. And it's like, how can so much life be put into one spot? seems improbable but there it is in front of you and you get to see all the different parts of the ecosystem and you don't really have to go very far to see it and i think that's uh, one of the things that makes louisiana so special and and so for me to have that opportunity to go out with folks and show them that firsthand and kind of explain to them the problems that we're facing and and some of the things that i'm trying to do to fix it 
it's really uh, it's really a pretty exciting deal. Yeah, that's awesome. And 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 Lucas, we we actually um, we met at an event here in, in Charleston actually a, a few months ago, and I had an opportunity to um, come to one of your talks, and I was really blown away with um, everything that that you're doing on on the on the conservation front, and uh, particularly with uh, the the replanting of of, of mangroves um, in Louisiana, which prior to um, your talk, I honestly wasn't even aware that mangroves were were in Louisiana, um, and it was really interesting. And, and you've got an awesome project going on. Could could you um, maybe tell us a little bit a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, about three years ago, I kind of pulling along one of the banks down in, in Hopedale, Louisiana, where I fish and and had been seeing these black mangroves out there in the marsh. But, you know, black mangroves are, are, are native to Louisiana. A lot of people definitely don't know that. They're typically going to be a little further south than where I fish, or at least in, you know, mass numbers. But uh, there are quite a few in, you know, right along the coast in the Gulf of Mexico in Louisiana. And so I'm seeing these black mangroves, and they're just very spotty. You know, there's one here, there's one there. There's a couple islands that have quite a few on them, but but mainly it's just a single plant or two or three plants on on some of these really ex, you know exterior edge islands uh, in the marsh that I fish. And so I'm looking at these things, and I'm thinking, man, I probably could help these plants out if I were to go and grab seeds and just like spread them out in some of these areas that seem to have at least the opportunity to grow these black mangroves, but because of tide movement and wind and other things that just seeds have never gotten distributed here. And so that was, that was kind of how this idea sort of was spawned in my head as I was pulling along the bank. And, and it was a little bit selfish in my initial intentions, simply because I thought if I could create a like giant windbreak of mangroves, it would make the fishing a whole lot easier on most days because <laughs> one thing one thing that no longer exists in Louisiana out in the marsh is trees. You know, it used to be that these these marshes were freshwater and so they were full of cypress trees. But unfortunately with oil exploration and other things, the trees were logged, they were taken out or they died from saltwater intrusion and so the only thing that's left are just giant stumps that are under the water. And so I was like, man, you know, even on the little bit of wind, since there's nothing out here to stop it, you know, every day is kind of windy. And so it'd just really be neat to have have an opportunity to hide behind the mangrove. So that was sort of the selfish uh, intentions in the beginning. But uh, once I started kind of looking into how I could actually go about doing this in a sustainable way, I started to make relationships with folks inside the local government, and before I knew it, this project became something far beyond anything that I had ever even hoped or dreamed about. And and now, three years later, we've planted over 5,000 mangroves on 40 acres of land. We've incorporated the local high school kids who come out. Not only do they plant the trees once they've grown a bit and they're in the greenhouses, but they actually grow them in their high school greenhouse, getting an opportunity to, you know, kind of see something that they've done grow up and and a sense of achievement that I think is just really kind of the coolest part of this project at this point is is the community aspect of it. So 
it's a it's a pretty cool thing. I definitely enjoy seeing the the kids out there in the marsh, getting an opportunity maybe to ride a boat for the first time, or uh, you know step foot out on on some of this land for the first time. And it's really it's really just a an opportunity that I never expected, and something that has inspired me to go further than just the Black Mango Project now. So. Um, yeah, that's definitely one of the things that I focus on here and, and have been for a few years now. And I'm really proud of, of where it kind of started and, and now where it currently has ended up. Yeah, no, that that is absolutely amazing and, and so important to, to get the, the, the next generation involved, right? Uh, to let them know that, hey, this is something that is yours too and um, you can help to Im- improve the, the fishery with a, with a natural uh, solution like uh, replanting black mangroves, but I was curious, you know, you, you mentioned selfishly, you were just trying to get out of the wind for, <laughs> for, for, for your clients. Um, what are, what are some of the additional, I guess, um, like I, I, like I know that mangroves, for example, um, sequester carbon. So they're actually like a natural climate solution, but, um, what are, some of the additional um, environmental benefits or benefits to the fishery um, that result from from planting black mangroves. Yeah, they're they're an absolute awesome restoration tool in the sense that the the sort of root structure that they create is absolutely beneficial when it comes to holding together the land that they're planted on. Mm. Uh, smooth smooth cord grass that is the predominant grass that we have in the marsh. It's a quick growing grass, but the, the root systems are shallow. And so you get any sort of like water wave action. Erosion takes place at a very rapid rate. And these plants just simply fall off into the, into the water and then they, they float away. Whereas a mangrove, once it gets an opportunity to get a stronghold, I mean, the, the actual root system could be as deep as 10 feet and it could go as wide as 30 or 40 and so you're you're getting much more bang for your buck when you talk about having one mangrove versus especially one uh smooth cordgrass uh stalk which is probably not a fair uh comparison but you know when you look at you look at the opportunity for for sort of shoreline stabilization black mangroves are by far the best opportunity that we have in the state uh with a native growing plant um, not only that, but it's a great bird rookery. I mean, there's all sorts of different birds that, that not only live and, and thrive here in the state of Louisiana, but a lot of them breed here as well. And so an opportunity for pelicans and, and egrets and heron and other things to, to use these as a protected area for them to nest is, is really a great benefit as well, because a lot of the land that these birds are using and have used historically is either no longer there or the, the water level is so high that if they get any sort of tide event, a lot of the eggs are drowned before they actually hatch. Hmm. And so, you know, it's, I'm not saying that a bird that's never put its nest in a tree is going to start, but if you can hold the land there longer, you're going to hopefully have an opportunity to keep them from getting drowned on those low lying areas. Or if the water just takes away the island altogether, a lot of these birds, because this is such a, a, an evolutionary norm, you know, a lot of them don't know what to do whenever their historic place of, of breeding has been taken away. So, you know, providing areas uh, not only that are going to be more stable, but then also 
stabilizing the areas that are potentially falling into the to the ocean is, is definitely a benefit of the black mangrove. And and is so you mentioned you know stabilization right um, is and and from what I've read and obviously you, you would know more about it but um, Louisiana is actually starting to to lose some of its marshland right and some of the some of these islands is, is, is starting to um, yeah, it's starting to disappear. Am I am I right there? Or? Yeah, yeah. Starting is is probably not right. I mean, this has been happening since since the 1920s. Um, basically, Louisiana is built by the river, so it's an entire you know sort of river delta. And and the way that the the river built these deltas was in lobes. So you had water come down. Natural flooding would occur during high water events in the spring or high rainfall. Um, that would cause uh, ton of sediment load to come down the river it would then naturally flood out it would build land as it sort of stopped itself from flowing the river it would move to the path of least resistance and it would build another lobe and so the delta is currently made up of like three or four lobes and what happened is that in the 1920s when louisiana decided to levy off the river in order to control flooding and also make it a ship you know opportunity for them to bring big ships up and down the river they stopped that natural sedimentation that was taking place. And, and, and any organic is going to rot over time. And as it does, it sinks. And so that's called subsidence. Hmm. And so that subsidence has been occurring since the 1920s. Well, it's been occurring long before that, but there was a replenishment system that existed. And so now that that replenishment system has been cut off, Louisiana continues to sink. And as it sinks, that coupled with sea level rise, you end up with an expedited sort of process of land loss. That, coupled with the uh, oil exploration I talked about earlier, that cut canals into the marsh that allowed for saltwater intrusion into a freshwater marsh, you have a vegetative change that takes place. And as that vegetative change takes place, you have areas that are exposed without anything stabilizing it. It washes into the water even faster. Not to mention that with, with water and any hydrology, that as you create a path of least resistance, the water is going to flow through those areas faster than it historically would have, and so that's going to pull more sediment out back into the Gulf of Mexico and faster than it ever would have before, you know, creating this just, uh, you know, sort of cycle that that makes more and more land loss take place that it never would have done in that capacity. So that, and then climate change <laughs> right right yeah and 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 that's uh so obviously climate change is is um i feel like probably the biggest threat to fisheries around i mean basically the, the way that i the way that i try and at least make sense of it is in terms of, of environmental threats to our fisheries is, is what i call the three p's and so that's um policy uh, pollution, uh, pollution in the form of whether it's plastic pollution or um, as it relates to climate change, greenhouse gases, so air pollution, um, and population, right? So, you know, all of those can have significant impact on our fisheries and the way that we choose to develop, and policy influences a lot of that, but ultimately climate change is, is, is the big threat. And so, you know, you mentioned sea level rise um as as part of that and 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 saltwater intrusion um what are what are some of the the things that um or 
or can you elaborate on on some of the things that that y'all are seeing in Louisiana as it as it relates to to climate change in your fishery? Yeah, so we're uh, we're seeing obviously more intense storms than we've seen uh, in the past. Uh, we've seen more frequency in storms than we have in the past. We've also seen storms that are happening at different times of year, and by storms I mean hurricanes or, or tropical events. Um, this past two or three years now, we've had a tropical event in October, which I know hurricane season does actually go through the first of November, but there's not a whole lot of, of hurricanes in the past or tropical events that were happening beyond the end of September. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's, it, this year uh, we had one of the most odd things in the world that I've ever seen, which was a tropical storm that was being pushed off the coast by a cold front which is just an odd juxtaposition that, you know, when you think of, when you think of a tropical storm or a hurricane, you think of warm weather, hot weather. And the idea that a cold front that was strong enough to shear this thing off was coming down at the same time that this was hitting land is a, is a pretty odd dichotomy that we've never seen before. And so, you know, when you start looking at this over, you know, over the, the course of, of our reported history and you start to see these changes, you start to realize that, you know, something different is taking place, and one could only point towards, you know, climate and change being the the driver in some of these odd weather events. Not only that, but this past year, uh, here in 2019, we had more water come down the Mississippi River than we've had in recorded history. Uh, they had to open our spillway here that helps to relieve some of the pressure off the river for over 100 days. They opened it twice. Uh, in the past, it's never been open that long, which allowed for uh, uh, quite a significant amount of fresh water to sort of percolate through our marshes, which now are brackish or saltwater. And so that kind of amount of fresh water is going to have negative impacts on the animals and the uh, the flora that live there. So, um, you know, seeing those sorts of things and seeing this sort of extreme be the norm is definitely something that we've seen that's impacted our fisheries. Um, with that fresh water comes all sorts of things like algal blooms that it can be detrimental to fish, can be detrimental to oxygen levels in the water, uh, can be detrimental to humans. I mean, there's, there's cases of people getting sick from some of these algal blooms. So, uh, you know, things, things along those lines are definitely things that we're seeing here that we've never seen before, uh, and they're, they're impacting our fisheries. And just expediting the process when it comes to how quickly things are, are being negatively impacted. And, you know, one of the things that, that our fisheries are really good at is adaptation. But whenever the, the changes are coming in multiple different ways from different directions, it makes it really tough for even the best of fish to adapt to these new and changing environments. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you make an important point that, you know, it, nature – in and of itself is, is, is pretty resilient. But when you have these extreme events happening, happening at an increasing frequency, it, it makes them less resilient. They're, they're, they're not able to recover as quickly, um, from such extreme events that are, that are just happening more and more. Um, and so that, that in and of itself on, on the climate change front, you know, you're, you're seeing it on the front lines. I'm seeing it here in Charleston. Um, I read an article 
uh, either this week or last week in the Post and Courier, which is our local paper, and we had 78 days where downtown was flooded, which is unprecedented. Um, so in terms of sea level rise, you know, they were, they were saying, you know, they didn't understand, like, and I noticed it when I was out red fishing on a flood tide, was the the chart, um, the tide chart would call, so we, to, to back up a little bit, we have an average tidal swing of five feet between high tide and low tide twice a day. And towards full moons and new moons, we have what we call flood tides and um, meaning that the the tide is going to swell because of the the gravitational pull of the moon to six feet usually right around there. When that happens, our marsh grass floods. Redfish go into the marsh grass to eat to escape their predators, which is um, our, our old pal Flipper, and also uh, eat crabs. Right, so when they do that, their tails stick out of the water, and you're fishing to a tail and redfish, which is um, super exciting. But that being said, this year they've noticed that the, and I noticed it. I mean, just out fishing, like this, this tide's only like, you know, there's a big difference between a five, eight and like a six, three, um, in terms of what that does to a flat. And I noticed it just, you know, non-scientifically, just observationally being like, this, this is crazy. This was only supposed to be a six foot tide. And, you know, which would normally on, on the one of the flats that I fish comes up to right below my knee and it was up to the middle of my thigh. And I was like, this is because at that point, it, 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 the tide's too high. You, you, you can't see their tails. Um, and so we're, we're, we're seeing that here as well. And, uh, you know, sea level rise is, is going to continue to be um, a really significant threat to our fisheries, but also to us, right? You know, I mean, we're, we're, as people who live on the coast um, in low-lying areas, um, it's, it's really going to pose a, pose a problem, which sort of leads me to thinking about, well, what are ways that policy is, is influencing this, right? You know, how, how are, are, are there different um, ways that policy can impact, let's say, climate change? And for us on the coast, and I know um, one of the, the other um, projects, I guess, that, that you're, you're working on um, – is in relation to Magnuson Stevens Act, right? And it's it's right. uh, reauthorization. So, um, wanted to, to ask you uh, more about that. I, I'm obvious, you know, I'm I'm familiar with it, but it, but if you'd like to sort of e- educate us and uh, tell us a little bit more about that and and what is happening, um, because I guess as a, a thirty thousand foot overview, you know, Magnuson Stevens was was put into play, I think, in nineteen seventy six, um, to basically better manage our fisheries in terms of overfishing, which is directly re- related to, to population, um, but also policy, and has had a really successful track record. Um, but then now it's up for, I guess, reauthorization, and they're considering. Uh, adding or taking away different elements of it, which to me doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'll, 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 I'll let you uh, elaborate on that. 
Yeah, so uh, you're right that in 1976, the Magnuson-Stevens Act was created, and it was initially brought forth in order to combat the sort of foreign fishing fleets that were entering our our waters, and they were they were taking uh, more than their fair share of the fish that were off our coast. And so uh, that direct threat was the sort of impetus that created Magnuson. Uh, but over the years, as it's been reauthorized every 10 years, like most big bills are, uh, it has had other things incorporated into it that started to manage our fisheries in you know sort of a thoughtful way that would help to combat that population increase that you talked about and sort of the natural pressures that we're putting on our fisheries as humans. It also does a good job of balancing sort of the commercial aspect of our fisheries and the recreational aspect. Um, the Magnuson-Stevens Act in the last 40 years has been reauthorized in a very bipartisan way. Uh, it went across the aisles. Everyone agreed that protecting our federal fisheries was important and using science to do it was important. Uh, unfortunately, in this last reauthorization, which initially started in 2016, you had people in the recreational side of things who wanted to deregulate Magnuson in a way that would allow for more access in their minds to the fishery and allowing people to get out on the water more often, which in their sort of behind the scenes move was to sell more gear, sell more boats, sell more motors. Um, some of the people who were driving this were uh, hoping that by getting people on the water more that they would see an increase in sales, an, an extremely short-sighted business move and, and a downright despicable environmental move. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, folks in today's administration seem to favor money more than the environment at times. And so they were finding uh, a willing audience around this sort of concept of deregulation allowing for more access. The problem with that, as we all know, is that as you deregulate, you take away the protective practices of something. And as you take away protection, you, you gain more exposure, and exposure can lead to collapse. And the bad part about all this is that we've seen this happen before in the past, and so we're, we're actually in, in the good old days now, <laughs> and that we knew what the bad old days looked like. And so people like me are saying, hey, I don't want us to go back to a time whenever we didn't have fish to catch. Why in the world would you want to continue this boom-and-bust cycle by deregulating and taking away the parts of Magnuson that we're doing a dang good job of making sure that we had science to back the decisions that we made around federal fisheries management. So, yes, Magnuson is currently under attack in that sense. We did a good job last year of thwarting some of those advances by sort of neutering some of the bills that have been created to try and deregulate. Um, luckily, Congress was listening whenever folks like myself and others went into the halls of Congress and said, hey, these people don't speak for all recreational anglers. We see an important aspect of this being taken away, and we don't want to see that happen. And here are the reasons why. And so luckily, we were able to sort of defend against that. And so now we're in a unique position because you have folks like Congressman Jared Huffman in California who is going to work on the reauthorization, and he wants to listen to all the user groups and make sure that he's making a good decision based on all the aspects of what goes into fisheries management, including, and most importantly, data collection and science. Yeah. And if you start to take away those parts, you end up with nothing more than just an anecdotal, you know, sort of 
visual identification of problems and solutions, and that's no way to manage anything. Um, you know, you can't you can't let the fox into the hen house and expect it to to regulate itself to only eat so many hens. Right. Um, before you know, before you know, there won't be any chickens, and it'll move on to the to the pigs. So, um, the other thing that's happening that's really kind of exciting for me is that I believe Magnuson has an opportunity to start a national conversation around climate. One of the things that I think happens whenever you get on the water, and you can attest to this, Rick, is that you have a visceral experience that transcends all things earthly whenever you hold a fish in your hand. That may be a really dramatized and fantastical way to describe it, but I truly believe that this is this is the experience. I mean, you, you have the opportunity probably to have the closest apparition to God whenever you're experiencing nature in all of its glory and you're seeing a fish do what it naturally does and you have an opportunity to hold it in your hand. If you then decide to take it home and eat it, that only, that only extends the experience. You know, I'm not saying you have to let every fish go to enjoy yourself. I just think that that experience on the boat is something that is absolutely paramount over all the earthly things that we're burdened with. And at that moment in time, you forget everything but the experience that you're having at that moment. Yep. So that being said, I think, I think that on the water, there is no Democrat or Republican or politics. I think you're an angler. And as anglers, we all can admit that in the fisheries that we are out there in, we are seeing stuff happen. We are seeing changes. And so I think that Magnuson has an opportunity to start a national conversation and in that conversation start talking about adaptation that we can do through the management of our fisheries in order to address climate change. And that's an exciting thing for me because I think that this has been so polarized through all the channels that people do to polarize things that you can't have a meaningful conversation with somebody beyond, I believe it, I don't believe it, it's man-made, it's not man-made. And there's like so many factions and camps that it's impossible to get a single answer from any one person. And so for me, with Huffman leading the charge and then folks like your representative in, in Charleston, Cunningham, coming up with you know, ways to get our managers to start thinking about climate and how it's affecting our fisheries, I think we're at a really cool you know, sort of confluence here of an opportunity to have Magnuson drive the national conversation and also be the leader in how we move forward addressing climate through our fisheries. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think you're, you hit the, hit the nail on the head and, and, um, oddly, I, I, I was recently, um, I guess maybe not oddly, I do read a lot of stuff about climate change and sustainability, but, I read this quote recently, and I happen to have it handy that I think plays well with exactly what you're talking about. Um, and it's, you know, at, first and foremost, everyone wants to make climate change this, um, you know, either conservative or liberal agenda. And that's just simply not true. You know, the, the science is science. When you start to ignore the science in uh, to try and, and for, for basically short-term gain, right? Oh, well, you know, we'll, we will agree with the science as long as it is in a, agreement with where we want to go on an economic basis. But if it is in disagreement, then you're in two different camps. And that's, you know, the science is the science. I mean, there's just no, <laughs> there's, just, there's no way around that. I, I, I'm not a climate scientist. 
Um, but I am, I think, intelligent enough to know that I would trust a what a scientist says that has nothing to gain by simply reporting their findings um, over someone who does have something to gain economically. Um, and, and so th- this quote is, is from one of, if anyone's looking for any, any good books or, or anything like that on, on sustainability, um, this guy, Paul Hawken, has written a few of them. One of my favorite is uh, Ecology of Commerce, but he was also involved with this, this new book, uh, Project Drawdown, which is 100 Solutions uh, to Solve Global Warming. But um, this is a quote from him. It says, we see global warming not as an inevitability, but as an invitation to build innovate and affect change a pathway that awakens creativity compassion and genius this is not a liberal agenda nor is it a conservative agenda this is the human agenda and i think that that's really important for for anyone who may be on the fence or is thinking hey you know oh well, that's just you know all these liberals talking about climate change it's not it's science and to your point with, with Magnus and Stevens, and, and, and completely agree with you, I guess, to, to bring this back to, to, to what we're talking about, um, I, I couldn't agree more that this is nothing short of a, of a wonderful opportunity um, to start to incorporate um, climate change into MSA. And that's something that I wanted to, to ask you more about. I mean, what what I, I, I know that I've, I've heard uh, Representative Joe Cunningham from South Carolina um, talk about this a little bit and um, sort of talking about, you know, w- what are climate-ready fisheries? What, what do those look like? And, um, and and that's something that I think is, you know, it, it's imperative for a couple of reasons. One, you can't, you can't govern and have regulations that were written 50 years ago continue to be the same regulation because the because the entire landscape's changed, right? I mean, the population has exploded over the last fifty years. So, that, so if and and don't get me wrong, I wish it wasn't this way. I wish we didn't have to have all of these regulations, and there was abundant resources that you know were were seemingly never going to, to, to dwindle. But that's just, that's not where we are right now in the life of the planet. We have to prepare for this. So I wanted to ask you if you could tell, tell us a little bit more about, you know, what, what do climate-ready fisheries look like and as it, that relates to, to Magnus and Stevens? Well, I mean, one of the things that we're going to be able to do in the short term and something that I think Magnuson has done a really good job with is building resiliency into our stocks. So, as we talked about earlier, if you have multiple things happening to a stock at the same time from many different angles, it has a, it has a real hard time adjusting or adapting to all of those changes. Mm-hmm. But one thing that you can do is to build resiliency into the stock through conservation or conservative management, I guess, it is as bad of a, a term as that may be <laughs> when you say it like that. I mean, the truth is, is that if you have more healthy fish that they are going to be far more suited to adapting to the things that are coming. So right now, if you don't understand that with the changes in water temperatures in our oceans, that there are migratory patterns that are changing or that there are, there are fish that are moving more north than they've ever been before, 
if you don't understand, A, how that's happening or why it's happening, then you're not going to be prepared for it. And then the managers of those areas aren't going to be ready to manage these fish in a way that is going to keep them around for longer. I mean, if, if a guy in Maine has never dealt with a tarpon before, but a tarpon is now in Maine, then, you know, you need to be ready and, and willing to understand that these migratory patterns are happening. So something that would be very, I don't want to say easy because nothing in, in D.C. is easy, but one of the things that I think could very quickly be written into Magnuson would be, you know, sort of starting to understand how these migratory patterns are going to change, try to stay ahead of the curve when we talk about which fish are moving and why and where they're headed to. And, and that's something that we currently just don't look at because there's never been a reason to look at. Right. And, and just as you said, when 1976, Magnuson nor Stevens were like, oh, yeah, I could see a day whenever we're going to have to worry about bluefish ending up in Canada. You know, like that, that's never been something that they had to think about. And so that was never written into the bill. And so now we have an opportunity I don't want to use the word nay because I think it's cliche, but nay, not an opportunity. <laughs> we have a responsibility to start looking at this stuff in an extremely focused manner because we can no longer bury our heads in the sand. The, the, the analogy that I use is very walking dead in that 25 years ago, we were hoping to prevent the zombie apocalypse. Well, guess what? The virus has started. The apocalypse is here. We can only now help to prevent our house from being busted in by said zombies. Right. And so if we are not if we are not willing to put up the spikes, put out the barbed wire, and do everything that we can to prevent this from getting into our house, guess what? We too will be zombies and then we won't know what's happening and we'll fade into you know, into into eternal existence or lack thereof. So for me, this is a responsibility that our managers have in addressing what is happening currently, what will potentially happen. And the only way that you can do that is a twofold process. One, you have to start studying this stuff to understand what changes are taking place. That's important. If we don't know what's changing, how do you fix it? And then two, starting to build resiliency into our stocks in order to anticipate the issues that these fish are going to run into. And then three, it's going to have to be around habitat and loss and then helping to restore that habitat. Because I don't care how healthy you make a fish, if the ecosystem around it is falling apart, it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. You can regulate and manage this thing to your blue in the face and make as many of them as you want by, by keeping people from fishing them. But if the ecosystem that they depend on starts to falter or waver, the fish in turn will do so as well. I mean, we all learned in like third grade about the food chain. And so we understand that as the food chain falls apart, the fish are going to fall apart too. I mean, that's just the way it goes. And so we have a real, we have a real opportunity here. And I think that the people who are currently in place in the house, i.e. Cunningham and Huffman are going to do a good job of addressing these things in a twofold manner that allows us to come in with eyes wide open, knowing that, you know, management has an opportunity here. They have a responsibility here, and we need to do everything in our power to make sure that those things get incorporated into this this latest reauthorization. Yeah, and and hundred percent agree with everything you said. And, and I also love that you know um, we said it earlier, but you 
feel like did a good job of of, of driving that home is that you know you, th- this is this is an opportunity, right? I mean, this is not. Um, yes, circumstances are, are getting more dire by the minute. You know, the, the, the zombies are here, right? Um, but we're also presented with an enormous opportunity to, to, to reinvent and, and make things better and, and, and do a better job of, of planning ahead because it is our responsibility, and, and especially if you have children, which I know we both do, um, you know, it, it's more of a responsibility. I mean, to, to think that um, I might not, might not be able to go out fishing with my daughter because of depleting fish stocks because their habitat's destroyed and uh, the, the water has warmed to a point where, you know, it's getting deoxygenated and we can't go fishing is just not acceptable. I just, I can't, I, 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 I will not allow that to happen. And I know you won't either. Um, but it, it, it's a, uh, it, I, I guess my my point is is that let's not look at this as hey this is more regulation trying to crack down let's look at this as an opportunity to protect and conserve um, resources for future generations um, responsibly you know I mean it, it's not it, it's certainly doable um, I know that you're working hard on on your end to to, to ensure that that happens. Um, but I, I think that's just a really important point with, with everything, you know, I mean, you read stuff about climate change and it can kind of, or you, you know, whatever you, whatever you read or you watch. And it's just like, it's almost like a, a beat down. But if you, if you re, I guess, change your mindset a little bit and see it as an opportunity, then it's the biggest economic opportunity of the 21st century. Um, in, in, in my opinion, to, to solve climate change. And, and, and um, I think that it's something that maybe we need to change our mindset in terms of this isn't a, this apocalyptic thing that, but that can happen, no doubt. And we're certainly trending that way, but more frame it around the opportunity to, to, to just make the world a better place, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of um, as basic as that when you think about it. Well, I mean, anybody who doesn't see this as an opportunity to go far beyond our fisheries, I mean, you just said it. We're always talking about the unemployment rate in this country. We're talking about the economy. Well, if this is the new industrial revolution of sorts, and there's opportunity here for someone to go out there and create a niche that didn't exist before and then capitalize on that while helping the planet, why in the world aren't we pushing this from every angle? Like, why is it that it's, it's always this, like, degree of separation that I never understood? All these things don't have to be mutually exclusive. You don't have to change the entire way you think about life in order to go out and be an entrepreneur who helps shape the future of not only your own family and your economic status, but also the future of our planet. I mean, there's, there's so much opportunity around this that if people aren't looking into it in a real meaningful way, they're missing the mark. And I think part of it is that, you know, certain folks in the powers of be <clears throat> kind of want you to stay in the dark on all this stuff and keep you angry about it so that there isn't a, a real revolution that takes place around this. Because, you know, and we don't have to get into the entire, like, you know, financial structure of D.C., but the truth is, is that those that have the most money tend to make the most rules 
And yeah. so if someone is, is hell-bent on staying in, a, in the path that we're currently on, they're going to do everything in their power to make people think of this in a completely non-entrepreneurial way and make it all about emotion and how, you know, you're crazy if you admit this and it's all doomsday and it's all bad and don't think about it, just ignore it. But <clears throat> the reality is, is that we as, as, as humans and then we as Americans have always done a really good job of rising up to a challenge and kicking its ass. Yep. And so I don't understand why we wouldn't take that opportunity, Republican or Democrat. I mean, one of the things that, you know, the Republican philosophy is about helping someone help themselves. Well, here's an opportunity for lots of folks to go out there and be inventors and get really creative. Why wouldn't we all be excited about this challenge? I think it's because of the framing and the messaging, like you said, that comes around or goes with climate change is that we've made it this like, oh, they're just chicken littles out there saying the sky is falling and you can't listen to that kind of stuff. It's too negative. There's no hope. What about the other countries who consider themselves developing and all the stuff they're putting into the earth? Well, guess what? This country is pretty gosh darn big and we do a whole lot of stuff here and then we have a lot of opportunity to make it better and set an example for some of these other countries. Why wouldn't we take that opportunity? Why wouldn't we be American in the way that we've tackled and addressed all the other issues that have come of us in our short history on this earth. Like it just, it just makes no sense to me that people don't see this as a true opportunity to rise to a challenge and get creative and start to, to innovate and, and change and adapt. I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate that people don't see this as, as big of an opportunity as it truly is. And maybe that's on people like you and me who need to stop talking about all the negatives and start talking about more of the positives. You know, maybe we can do that, but, um, I think that's something you've done a really good job of in the conversations that I've had with you is that you've always said, like, here's an opportunity. Here's, here's a good chance to, to go out and save the world, not it's too late. Let's just all hope for the best. Well, no, I mean, and, and you, you just can't. But, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. And, and I think this is, you know, in, in important to, uh, part of the conversation because it, it is um, – Climate change, if if you look at it, or you could look at fishery decline, or you know overfishing and popular. I mean, you know, it's it's basically if if you look at the scientific data, it, it you know it, it's depressing. But you also have to look at, and this is sort of again, I've, <laughs> I've clearly been reading a lot of Paul Hawken lately. But um, another one, sort of paraphrase one of his quotes is that if you uh, look at the scientific data and 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 what that shows you, and 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 you're not uh, pessimistic, then then you don't understand data is basically what that means. But if you look at people like yourself and uh, companies and organizations and everyone that are doing truly amazing work, that are improving uh, their local environment, their local communities, their local economies, and doing really inspiring things, um, and you're not optimistic, then you haven't got a pulse. You, you, it, so I think that it, it's, it's a matter of um, shifting our mindset and not buying into this divide and conquer. Um, this, is all, this is all of our problem. It's all of our responsibility, but it's also everyone's opportunity. 
to capitalize on this. And I, and, and I completely agree with you that I don't think there's any other country that's more better suited to change the game, to change the landscape, to shift away uh, from fossil fuels, to find alternatives, to work towards carbon neutrality, to, to, to work towards zero waste, to do all of these things um, that are better for, for everyone and especially better for the next generation and the generations to come. And so um, I, I see this as, uh, like I said, I think this is the greatest opportunity and you mentioned since the industrial revolution and and absolutely um this this is it this is the 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 point where um we make a decision and draw a line in the sand and start making making headway um and so i think the an important message you know is also that you know the time is now it's not 10 years from now you know we (laughs) it's it's now um everyone needs to be doing uh whatever it is that they're that they're best at to try and have these conversations and i think hopefully that any you know anyone listening to this understands that that's what we're trying to do right we're 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 trying to um educate and create more awareness about these things and and just open the conversation uh, but also share some inspiring success stories which is something that i wanted to to ask you about in terms of um, maybe it's the mangrove project. Um, may, w- what are what are some things that um, that are happening that are that are inspiring that that, that maybe you could share with, with everyone, Lucas? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, having conversations with folks at let's say at IFTD in Denver this year. Um, you know, talking to people in companies and organizations and listening to their mindset and how they want to move forward is really inspiring to me because it shows me that we have gone beyond some of us have gone beyond the political parts of this and realize that it's our responsibility to go out and try to make a difference. And so it's stories that I hear from, you know, Maine all the way over to to Oregon, and that people in pockets of this country are starting to say, you know what, I can't sit around and wait for someone else to come here and try to save my area. I'm passionate about it. I want to see it survive, so I'm going to do something. I mean, you have people like Hillary Hutchinson up in, in Glacier National Park who has been a climate fighter for years. She has been on an island by herself out there seeing what's happening in her home waters on a daily basis and saying, we have to wise up. You know, we've seen people down in Florida who are saying, hey, we are seeing algal blooms we've never seen before. We are seeing massive fish die off. We are seeing all these things that are affecting our fishery. We must come together and rise up. And so I'm inspired by those folks who have said, you know what? Popular opinion be damned. I'm willing to sacrifice my business, my reputation, on trying to save my fishery because it is bigger than I will ever be. And as long as I look forward enough into the future, I can find reason to look past all the bullshit from the past. Yep. And that's that's what wakes me up every morning and makes me go out there and make a whole lot of energy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, no, man, I, I freaking love that. You uh, you just got me all fired up over here. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm ready to go out and like, Pick up trash. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm about, to, I'm about to get out of here and clean up this parking lot. Um, 
<laughs> um, no, man, that that is freaking awesome. And you know, uh, from we're, we're not totally done yet. I, I, I can't let you go yet. But I think for an inspiring message, I, I don't think there could be one that would be be much better than that. And um, I think that's it, right? You know, I mean, you 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 look at the science, you make an educated decision, and you protect what you love. And so I think that the more um, the more anglers that we have out there that get to experience the, the things that we're fortunate enough uh, to get to experience, you know, certainly you, um, to, me to, to a much lesser degree, um, to, but to get to spend as much time on the water and have an intimate knowledge of um, your local ecology and environment um, and to be the witness to that change and to do nothing is uh, irresponsible. And um, everyone out there who is enjoys fishing or, you know, whatever it is that you do, whether it's hiking or, you know, mountain climbing or whatever it is, you know, we all have a responsibility to protect what we love. Um, you know, initially, like you said, perhaps even selfishly initially, but I think that once you get on this path, um, similar to I had the similar to to when I started you know my business it was just for selfish reasons because I wanted to protect what I love but then once you start thinking um, outside of yourself and particularly if you, if you have children and and the next generation and, and the generations to come after them um, you know we're we're at a, a point in time in the life of the planet where um, I'm, I'm going to be on the right side of history and I'm going to do everything I can in, in my power um, to, to protect what I love, not only for myself, but for them. And, and I know you will, that you are too, Lucas. So um, thank you for, for, for your leadership. And um, what is, is there, by the way, but is there like a, um, the, the mangrove project, is there a website or anything like that we could send people to, to check out or how does that work? Yeah. Yeah, so I have a nonprofit here in the state called Anglers Bettering Louisiana's Estuaries, or ABLE. Okay. And uh, the website the website to see that would be anglersbetteringla.org. Okay. And it's a it's just it's an opportunity to sort of get an overview of us as a nonprofit, and then and some information on on the Black Mangrove Project. We also have a, uh, a cool documentary that was made a couple of years ago about the project called Desperat or Disappearing. Uh, that is available on YouTube. It's also available on, on my website, which would be louisianalowtide.com. So it'd be an opportunity to see see that movie and, and an opportunity to sort of learn a little bit more about me and, and how I got into all this and, and why I'm so passionate about everything that, that is around me and then even some things that aren't. Awesome. I, I love that. And, and, and I, and I'll put all the, um, I'll put links to all that too, um, whenever, um, we release this in the, in the next few days. So, um, everyone will be able to have quick access to that, but, um, yeah, definitely. And by the way, can anyone, I guess, donate to your nonprofit to plant mangroves? Um, yeah, yeah, we're, we are a, uh, 501c3. Is that right? <laughs> I think that's what it's yeah, called. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yep, uh, we we are that. We are we are tax deductible donation, and so all you have to do is go to anglersbetteringla.org 
click on the donate button and uh, you can you can put some money towards uh, a number of projects that we work on here in the state. Uh, the main one being the Black Mangrove Project, but then we also have some community outreach stuff that I started doing a couple years ago. And so um, it's a real opportunity to try to help things here in Louisiana from every perspective, not only from the environment, but also, uh, you know, getting out into the community. All right, cool. Um, so anglersbetteringla.org, check that out. Um, and then before we um, before we wrap up, I, I do want to spend a little, a little time talking a, a little fishing, right? Because um, we're talking about fisheries and policy, but let's just let's just talk a little fishing for a minute. Um, what is uh, and this is kind of rapid fire, but I'm also sort of making this up as I go, so um, I don't know how rapid it'll be. But <laughs> um, but all right, so Louisiana, obviously, you know, some of the best red fishing on the planet. Um, what is your go-to uh, redfish fly? Um, well, in Louisiana, I always like to say instead of matching the hatch, you match all the hatches. And so <laughs> I tend to tie flies that look a little like everything. So um, I use, I, I have a couple flies that are available through Orbis. Um, and so, uh, you know, I use those mainly just because they're available and I, I have them. But, um, but all of them sort of mimic crab a bait fish and a shrimp at the same time really if that's possible what what are the yeah, what, so are, what they, are the name of those flies uh so i have the bisset's crustacean and then bisset's mudbug are both available through orvis um and both have sort of a crabby head but then a longer tail kind of like a quan but then the profile from the side looks kind of shrimpy because of the the size of the tail so it's, uh, it, it does a really good job, I think, of sort of mimicking all the things that these fish are going to see. And and luckily, when a redfish is in a good mood, they're kind of an eat first and ask questions later kind of fish. And so uh, you don't necessarily have to have anything that looks a whole lot like well, one thing. In fact, I've found that they can actually be more finicky if you mimic something too well. So if they're focused in on small minnows and you're throwing a crab pattern, they may not even notice it, and so, and this is very Louisiana specific. Let's be let's be very clear yeah. that this is very Louisiana specific. But I like to match all of the things that these fish are going to encounter on a daily basis, and that tends to just be like a instinctual eat that yeah, that kind of looks like something I ate one time. <laughs> so basically, you you tie the alien predator of of redfish flies. Yeah, I want it to mimic everything it's ever seen. Absolutely. <laughs> it even makes that cool noise. Like, you know, like, <laughs> it makes that cool noise whenever it's sitting in a tree, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, all right. So, that, 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 those are some good, good tips there for those flies. Um, and what about, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, y'all get huge. I mean, huge redfish there. What, what, what are, do you have any memorable catches that, that come to mind in terms of, I guess, size or crazy fights or anything like that? Um, one thing that I, that always will stick in my mind is I had two brothers, um, from, uh, one lives in Colorado now and one was the strength coach for LSU football team at the time. Um, 
and they were on the boat, first trip to Louisiana, I think the first time they'd ever caught a redfish. And we had just like one of those days where all things were amazing. So we went into this little gut that was draining out because the water was extremely low. And we caught like four or five slot size redfish, which are anywhere between 16 and 27 inches. And the wind was slow and the weather was nice. And so I said, Hey, do y'all want to try to go catch some bigger fish? And they're like, Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, so we go out there and just waylaid on bigger fish. I think the first fish that guy caught was like 34 pounds. I mean, it was, Ooh. it was big. It was crazy. Like we didn't realize how big it was until he got to the boat and he's like, Oh my God, this is unbelievable. And then his brother was using spin gear and he was just catching them left and right off the side of the boat while his brother was catching them on the fly rod. And it was, it is one of those deals where like lunchtime, we were like, okay, like we won the lottery. I don't know what else we can do, but <laughs> we, we forged ahead and continued to fish and caught more. So, um, that was, that was years ago, but it was one of the things that has always stuck out in my mind because I remember them leaving and I said, you know what? Like, you just won the lottery. Like, don't ever think that you're going to see that again. Yeah, you, you then, just had the best then, fishing of your life. Yes, and I'll be damned if they didn't come back the next year and have almost the same exact day. No so, way. Apparently, yeah, apparently they're living right. I don't know how, but, yes, they must have been, like, donating to charity on their way to the water. But they, they, had, uh, they had some good luck in those pockets. And, uh, and had two days that were almost identical and just ridiculousness and in two different areas. And it was just, uh, just one of those deals I'll never forget. And, um, it helped that I saw one of the brothers on TV all the time and on LSU football games. But, um, yeah, it's just a funny deal that, uh, I, I will never forget that because it was one of those things where I'm like, well, lightning struck twice. So y'all are lucky. <laughs> it does happen. It does happen. <laughs> um, I mean, because they only booked one day each time. Well, so that's, that's, it. Like they were, I, they were, that's even way crazier to be like one yeah. day. Well, I mean, that, that is a lot of material. Well, I mean, look, here, here's the thing is that, and this is what I wanted to say earlier about, you know, kind of this whole climate thing is that we as fishermen have to be some of the most, optimistic folks on the planet because you know as well as I do that you can go out there 10 days in a row and nine of them are going to suck in some way. Yep. I mean, it's just fishing. It's just what it is. And especially when you talk about fly fishing, like now you take it to another level. You're like, oh, I wasn't happy having really a good opportunity of catching these fish on conventional tackle. I want to make that even harder. Yeah. And I want to catch less fish. And I want it to be something that embarrasses me on a regular basis. So not only are we like not only are we optimistic, but apparently we're also like masochists, you know. So um but the point is is that even anglers who are out there with their conventional tackle having a great time, we're all very optimistic people because we're willing to get up way too early, stay out there way too long justify the crappy weather, justify the crappy fishing, and we'll be ready to go back tomorrow with that. Yeah. How in the world are we so negative about our climate when we're talking about climate change? Like, how can you be that optimistic and that passionate around your fishery and then just go, no, uh, I, I see changes happening, but I, I'm not willing to admit it and I don't want to do anything about it. Right. Like, that to me is such, it's such a weird dynamic that I don't understand because... Every fisherman I've ever met has been like, around the next corner, 
the next cast. You know, like you're always <laughs> thinking like it's, it's going to happen the next time. Like it didn't happen this time, but I felt it. I thought it was close. And then, but the next time. Oh, well, okay. So the next time. Oh, well, the next time. The next trip. The next this. And yet we don't look past the end of the boat when we're talking about the next generation. Yeah. And so I, it's just it's just one of those things that is just always kind of blowing my mind. It's like, how can you be that optimistic about what you're doing, that passionate? And yet when you're talking about something that is threatening that very opportunity and you're just like, no, I'm okay. Yeah, I can't do anything about that. I'm just going to let that run. Right. No, that's not it. No, no, that optimism, it does not extend to that. You know, it's like it just, it's just mind boggling to me. And, and it's something that I think if people were to think about it from that perspective, you'd be like, well, hell yeah, I want to protect my fishery. What do I need to do? Well, Let's first start by admitting that climate change is happening. <laughs> start step, simple. step one. Just words. <laughs> yes, it's just words. That's all we're asking. <laughs> just say it out loud. Just you say don't it. have to say it in front of your friends. <laughs> practice it in the mirror if you have to. Yeah, just, just practice it in the mirror. See how it looks coming out of your face. Yeah, hey, look. So. <laughs> Uh, no, you're, you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, that that's part of it, right? I mean, it's it's just simply admitting it. But that's a that's a great analogy. Like, how could you be that optimistic about everything else on a boat, but say, hey, here's something that could take it away. What are you going to do about it? Well, I'm not sure that's the reason. No, it's what's 100 percent the reason. Um, right. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Like, okay. Right. I, uh, no, no. If a if a guy comes out with a new face lure fly that has the most ridiculous look in the world but that person who you've never met tells you it will catch fish you're going to buy that bait <laughs> yeah. like you are going 100 percent on faith that this guy you've never met who has no scientific data says the banjo minnow is the best thing that you've ever thrown out into the water <laughs> you're going by the banjo minnow i mean like that's not even a thing like you will have a dueling banjo minnow on the boat playing a banjo and you're like this is what i need like this is what i need and yet, when someone's like, hey, this thing's happening that's messing up your opportunity to throw your banjo in there, you're like, ah, I don't believe that guy. Yeah, I see the credentials, but not that guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't, just, don't trust that guy. <laughs> you're right, yeah. No, he's not telling me something that sounds good to me, you know, but the banjo in was the best thing I ever created. So that's, <laughs> that's the funny, you know, sort of world we live in as anglers and that we will buy the next best whatever. I mean, I think that... I think that fishing is is more changing than even like the computer world. Like you know, if you buy a laptop, twenty four minutes after you've bought it, it's obsolete. Like you can't use it anymore. You got to download new, you know, OSs every twenty minutes. But yet, fishing is that times a thousand because like you bought this fly that's the best thing ever. It's all the steps done, and you're like, yes, this is it. And then like twenty minutes later, a guy's like, yeah, but now I have the sex patio and you're like well now i need a sex patio like why didn't you tell me about it but we're all willing to go out and buy as many of these things as we possibly can in hopes of fueling that optimism and making me want to come back but yeah when you're talking about something that is a very real threat to our fisheries they're like no nah, that's too far of a stretch and uh, not, not that well no, it's, it's, that's it's, it's it's like instant gratification right because it's like oh well, i can i can do this right now and maybe this is sort of full circle um i'm full of all sorts of, of of quotes these these days but um another quote which r- relates directly to you and maybe can help shift the mindset mindset to shift um is you know he that 
he or she that, that, that plants trees loves others than themselves, right? Because they don't necessarily get to bear any fruit from that. And same thing with a mangrove, and maybe that's part of it, right, is to, to, to have people – to get them to think long-term, it's like, yeah, if you plant a tree, you understand that you know someone else is going to benefit that from that, right? I mean, like Louisiana, I'm from Savannah, I live in Charleston. You know, these live oaks that were planted, you know, 300 years ago, you know, they were just little trees when they were planted. And now there's these huge, beautiful things that line our streets. Well, those people didn't get to enjoy that, but we do. And so maybe that's, maybe that's part of the solution, right? Is um, using that as, as an example to, to think more long-term. I mean, that's a great example. Because I mean, those those trees that you're talking about are iconic. I mean, that's that's the the landscape you think of when you think of Charleston, when you think of Savannah, when you think of New Orleans or Louisiana at large. You know, and that's those are the things that people think of whenever you picture these places in your mind. And like you said, the guy who planted or the girl who planted this little tiny tree 300 years ago simply was like. It's going to look good one day. I'll never see it, but I know it's going to look good. <laughs> like they, they were visionaries. Yeah. Yeah, they were visionaries. I mean, they, they saw the future before it happened, and they knew that they could add this to it in order to make it a better place or, or at least prettier to look at. Now, they didn't understand all the, or the, all the benefits that were coming from planting those trees that were outside just the beauty. But even if they were doing it for those reasons, they did something that was far beyond themselves that they were never going to see the results of, but they were happy doing it because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And that's, that's what we need to do as, as humans on this planet is say, you know what, this is far beyond me. I mean, here's the thing. It's like when you talk about children, people who have them and even some who don't are more than willing to do whatever it takes to help that, that kid out. Like whatever it takes. Yep. This is simply just an opportunity to help your kids. It'll just be when they're adults. And there's not a person who has a child on this planet who wouldn't be willing to do whatever it took to protect their kids, unless you're talking about the future. And then they're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, this is just a bus. This is just a bus that's going to hit them in 40 years. <laughs> right. Like you would, you would knock them out of the way of the bus tomorrow, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, uh, it, well, hey, I mean, I guess that's, Hopefully, what what people are taking away from this conversation, right? You know, um, is to act now. Um, and even though you may may not see the uh, direct benefit from that, the the time is now. You know, and and um, I think that uh, some of the stories you've shared today have. have I, they've inspired me, so hopefully that that, that has been the case to, to anyone listening. Um, so, um, did, was there anything else to uh, Lucas that you'd like to to, to add um, before we 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 conclude the sustainable angler? Uh, no, I think that the only thing that I would leave people with is that something as easy as having a conversation and admitting the things that we're all seeing that science has proven can be enough to create change because right now people are relying on a division within this country in order to keep it a status quo. And all you have to do is say, Hey, I believe that there's a problem. I want to see something done about it because that creates political will and change is that if enough people say not any more, I will not stand for this. 
then things start to happen because status quo becomes really uncomfortable when everyone is out there banging on the door saying, not anymore. Yep. And so it's not something that you have to go out and plant a tree. I think you should. It's not something that you have to go out and, and clean up trash. I think you should. But it's something as simple as saying, hey, there's enough evidence here to, to dictate me moving forward in at least a verbal way in order to let the people who I've elected know that it's time to act. Yep. That's it. It's, it's very simple. I mean, we're not talking about going out and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, because if that were the case, you wouldn't be talking to me right now. I'm going to be <laughs> honest. Like, if you said, Lucas, the only way that we fix climate change is I'll be like, I'll go recruit somebody. Like, I'll go find that guy. But I'm telling you right now, Rick, I'm going to roll right back down that thing very shortly after we start. Like, I live under the ocean. I'm, I'm below sea level. Like, right. there's not a chance in hell you're getting me up the mountain. I mean, you can carry me. But if, unless I'm on a donkey rolling north, I mean, it's not happening. And even then, I probably still pass out. So we're talking about very simple steps in order to start affecting change. And that should be empowering. Yep. Because one of the things that most people believe is that things are too hard, and so they don't do it. This doesn't have to be hard. This can be as easy as just saying enough is enough. And that can have a butterfly effect towards some massive change. So I want to leave people with that because I think it's important because I think we all think everything is so daunting and so big and so much larger than we are. And the reality is that a bunch of voices at once make a hell of a lot of noise. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely um, love that, love that message. And, and they're probably the most powerful thing that anyone can do um, is contact your elected officials and just let them know that, um, Hey, you know, Climate change is real. I'm concerned about it, and I want to know what you're doing about it. And open up that conversation, and that can take as little as 30 seconds of your day um, to let your elected officials know that. And um, they hear enough people asking about it, then they will. Um, they know that their their job depends on it, and they'll start acting. So um, I think that's a great message to to end with, Lucas. Um, I. Um, actually, before before we we end here, I want to um, if someone wants to book a, a trip with you, where can they go to do that? Uh, so yeah, you head over to my website, which is LouisianaLowTide.com. Okay, and uh, I've got all the instructions there on how to book a trip. Uh, you put down a deposit. Uh, you can contact me directly either by phone or email. And then I have a lot of cool videos on there sort of teaching you how to practice for your trip and also all the things that you'll need to be uh, in hand as you come down in order to be prepared. So awesome. A lot of, a lot of good content on there to check out. But yes, LouisianaLowTide.com. All right, LouisianaLowTide.com. If you're headed to Louisiana, um, give Lucas a shout. Uh, he's sure to, to put you on some fish. Um, now everyone's going to think that they're going to have those epic days that you mentioned earlier. Right. So right. maybe we should manage your expectations first. Um, but <laughs> you call me, I will manage your expectations. Yeah. I'm really good at it. <laughs> um, no, but, um, Lucas, uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, also thank you for, um, all that you do, you know, you, you, you have, uh, inspired me when, when I went to your talk and, um, saw what you were doing, a, a wonderful example of how everyone, 
uh, can make a, a positive impact and, and make a difference on their community and their environment. Um, so I, um, I, I sincerely appreciate, um, everything that you do and that you're doing and, um, yeah, just thank you for, for everything. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate everything that you do. I mean, you, you've, you've educated me in a lot of ways on this, this whole climate change thing. And I appreciate you going out there trying to help businesses be more sustainable and, and think about our future and the planet's future. So kudos to you too, brother. I mean, you're doing a good job as well. And, and you're giving me a platform here to, to get my message out. So thanks to you. Well, happy to do it. Thanks for listening to the Sustainable Angler podcast. The Sustainable Angler is available anywhere you listen to your uh, podcast, such as iTunes, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. Um, do us a favor and give us a like, uh, comment, or share. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, give us a listen. Cheers. Cheers.